This uh, psalm, Psalm 103, as we continue our look at the psalms, this is a very powerful psalm. It's one that there are countless songs written about. Uh, We've sung several of them today, and there are even more. This psalm, honestly, deserves a sermon for each, maybe five words. (laughs) If you look at the first five verses, you could write a sermon on each little phrase. We get one. So my goal today is to do it justice. So first thing I want to do as we get started is I want to remind everybody that the sun is shining outside, okay? Some of you like that. I know some of you don't, but the sun is shining because we're going to go on a little trip back into history. Six months ago, history. If you remember, six months ago, we were in the dog days of an Oregon winter, which means we hadn't seen the sun for a very long time, which means we were getting used to the gray skies. We were getting used to the the rain, the nonstop dreary, shorter days, and it wouldn't matter anyways because we don't see the sun. The reason I bring that up is because when I was a kid, I didn't realize something that I know most of you probably did. And I didn't realize this until I took a trip in an airplane, went down to PDX, got in the airplane, it was dreary, it was rainy, got in the airplane, and you go up into the clouds, and you, you enter those clouds, right, you can't see anything out the window, and then what happens? You break through the clouds, and guess what? Above all these clouds here in Oregon, it's a beautiful day up there. It's totally crystal clear. Not a cloud in the sky, and the sun is shining. And so, The reason I bring this up is not to to make you go, oh man, that's in our future, it's coming, more rain. But I bring this up because this is what David is doing for us in this psalm. He wants to take us and he wants to bust through the clouds of this world and all the things that weigh us down and make us dreary and we go, I can't possibly whatever. He wants to bust through those clouds and let us see that the Son of God is still shining, that the God of the universe is still there. And he wants us to see it in all of its majesty and glory. And so this psalm is a reminder. This is David reminding himself and us that God is there, and this is what God is like. There's no hazy clouds that we have to see through. It's not those nights in in Alaska where the sun doesn't rise for 30 days and you have to imagine it's there. No, he is there. And this God is for you. This God is your God. So the goal of this psalm today and the goal of what I want to accomplish is I want to do one of two things. For some of you, I want to stir up where you've already been with the Lord. I want to stir up that, that just awe and respect and fear and love and adoration for this God that you had at some point in the past. But for whatever reason, clouds are gathering. I want to punch through those clouds for you today. For others of you, you've never had that. Maybe you've been in church your whole life and you've just said, hey, of all the religions, this one just makes sense to me. I want you today to come away from this psalm having seen God again for the first time or for the very first time because this psalm 
soars. And so we need to soar along with it. So if you want a main idea, the main idea would be something like we are flawed and finite, but praise God that he is infinite in mercy and grace and love. And this contrast between us and God is what this psalm is all about. Matthew Henry once said, don't be afraid of saying too much of God. All the danger is in saying too little. This is where we're at. I mean, David probably could have gone on for pages and pages more. He limited himself to this psalm. But this psalm is majestic. This psalm is a set of contrasts. He says, this is what we're like. This is what God's like. This is what we do. This is what God does. And praise be to God that he is vastly different than us. And that is good, good news. There's lots of things that will try to drag us down. There's lots of clouds that can cloud up our day. This is David counting his blessings and looking to his God for the solution. So the first thing we do before we we go through it is I want to point out that throughout this psalm, David is saying, here is what we are like. And he kind of does it through inference and kind of indirectly. So I want to point out what we're like, okay? So this is the bad news. The bad news is is that we're flawed. We're finite. We're limited. There's no hope for us if we have to earn our salvation. There's no way out if we're stuck in our sins. David says, these are the clouds. These are the things that weigh us down. According to this psalm, we are, what, we are iniquitous, verse three says this. The word iniquity means guilt that is worthy of punishment. So the first thing David says is we, we deserve punishment. We deserve punishment for our sins. Second thing he says in verse four, he says we're destined for the pit, which means we deserve to die. Verses eight and nine, we are deserving of God's anger. We have thumbed our nose at him, we've said, I'm gonna do my thing, not your thing. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 10 says, you're the most undeserving of all. You deserve nothing. You deserve zero. Verse 14, and we are nothing. We are dust. By comparison with the God of the universe, we're a little speck of dust. The strongest among us, no matter how strong our fellow human can be, we need to realize they are nothing. I was reminded of this at the beach when my kids, my two younger kids were making an awesome sandcastle. And they were building up this sandcastle and it was great and they had moats and pillars and all sorts of crab pieces, right? Parts of the dead crabs all over it. The sad part is, is that you know in a few short hours, it's totally wiped away. The waves come in. Even if you're a professional sandcastle builder, a wave can destroy it in a split second. And that's what we are. We are dust. We're sand. We're nothing. But he chooses to have a relationship with us. And that's the best news ever. Some of us think we're pretty hot stuff. Some of us think we're pretty much at the bottom. It doesn't matter what spectrum we're on because we're on the dust spectrum. And God says, those are mine. So let's look at the psalm. Starting in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, 
who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. A powerful psalm. This word bless at the very beginning. So some of the translations will say praise. They'll say praise the Lord. The problem with that is we actually have a Hebrew word for praise the Lord. And you all know it. It's the word hallelujah. And so if this had said praise the Lord, we all would have thought it was a hallelujah psalm. We've got some of those coming. But that's not the word here. The word bless is the word barak. And that word means to bless. Now when you look at that, you go, I don't, I don't quite get that. How, how can I bless God? This word, um, this, this concept of bless is kind of like when a father blesses his children with their inheritance. It's usually someone in power giving someone out of power a blessing, a thing. So really this word bless is not a great word in the English here. Probably the best way to, to, to describe this is to adore on bended knee. So if we read it like this, adore on bended knee the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me. Adore on bended knee his name. Or another way to put it is to praise with strong affection. Praise the Lord with all my affections, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. So we need to understand this is not us giving something to God that he's lacking. That's not what this is. That's not what this word bless means. Instead, it's to adore God. It's to love him for who he is. So bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is David preaching to himself. One of the things that we have a hard time doing is we do a lot of listening to ourselves. We spend a lot of time listening to the little monologue in our head or listening to the world when sometimes what we have to do, well, most of the time what we have to do is we have to stop and we have to go, no, I need to remind myself of the gospel. I am not defined by my work. I'm not defined by the things that I give into in sin. I'm not defined by whatever the world says I'm defined by. I'm defined by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the preaching to ourselves that we must do. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, was a doctor who became a preacher, and he's the one that coined this phrase, but it's throughout the Bible. This gospel self-talk. This is why we want to spend time in our word on a daily basis. This is why we gather corporately, because we need to be reminded of this truth, because we forget it. Psalms bring this up a lot. Psalm 42, 43, 62, 116, 146, 139. All throughout the Psalms, remind, remind, remind. Actually, the next two Psalms we'll be looking at over the next two weeks are about reminding. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He's saying, hold nothing back. There's no part of my life that I get to hold back and go, this is mine. No, it's the Lord's. Everything that I have is to adore him. Body and soul, ears, eyes, all limbs, senses, reason, all my faculties are to be devoted to him. Verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul. Again, he's repeating it because it's that important. And forget not all his benefits. Charles Spurgeon writes, memory is a very treacherous thing. By a strange perversity, because of the fall, it treasures up all the refuse of our past and permits priceless treasures to be neglected. It is tenacious about the grievances and holds all of the benefits 
all too loosely. It needs spurring to its duty, though that duty ought to be a delight. See, this is the good news. And we gather together and we sing it, we raise our hands, we talk about it, but we go out the door and we forget. And it's not because we're flawed or because we're lacking or we're less Christian than other Christians. It's because we're fallen. We live in a fallen world. So we need this constant reminder. We need to remember his benefits. You know, when you, when you get a new job or when you're looking at jobs and you've got several to look at, you look at the benefits package, right? And you say, what are the benefits that I get for this? This is God's benefits package. He says, you will receive forgiveness and healing and redemption and a crown and you will be satisfied. The best 401k or signing bonus can't compare to those. So let's look at the benefits package. Verse three, who forgives all your iniquity, pardons all your guilt. Iniquity is a weird word. It's not one of those words that you'll hear at the grocery store. It's not a word that just gets thrown around. This word means premeditated, continually, and escalating sin. This is, when we, this is when we flirt with sin and we go, oh, I've been a Christian a long time. I can handle this sin. I'm okay with this one. It's no big deal. But that cute baby monkey sin that you begin feeding turns into a 500-pound gorilla. And what we thought was small and harmless takes over our life. And so this is the iniquity that he's talking about. He's saying, you know better. You know this is a sin. My word is clear but yet you feed the monkey. You feed that sin, and what you feed grows, and it begins taking over your life. So sin becomes your God rather than the God of the universe. So we thumb our nose at God, and we put something else in his place, and he says, I'll forgive you for that. The second thing he says is, I will heal all your disease, all your diseases. Now, it's interesting. Some people read this, and they go, well, I know people that have diseases, so clearly this, this is a lie. Well, that's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about diseases like cancer, diseases like whatever other diseases you can come up with. That's not what this is talking about. God does promise that he'll heal all our diseases, but that's gonna be for eternity in our risen bodies. What he's talking about here, because of the way this is laid out, this is talking about spiritual diseases, if you look at it, verse three, the start, iniquity, that's a spiritual issue. Redeems you from the pit, that's the spiritual issue. This is all about the spirit. So what is he talking about? What diseases is he talking about? He's talking about the real diseases, the ones that not only will hurt your body, but he's talking about the ones that will send you to hell for eternity. He's saying, pride, I want to heal you of that. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, hatred, rebellion, these are the things that really matter. David's going, yes, the physical diseases are bad. He knew about them. He saw them, just like we do. He says, those are bad, but what's worse is to have a perfectly fine body with no disease and go headlong into hell. And so he says, I will heal your diseases. The Lord will heal your diseases. These benefits are ours in Christ. Verse four, it says, who redeems your life from the pit. This does not mean if you fall in a pit, he's gonna come and redeem your life out of it. This word pit is the word that's synonymous with Sheol, the place of the dead. What he's saying is, I'm not gonna leave you in the place of the dead. 
I'm not going to leave you in hell. I'm going to redeem you out of it. I'm going to pull you out of it. And there's a lot of nuances to this. But the basic idea is that before Jesus came, there was a place where all dead people went. The righteous here and the unrighteous there. And when Christ died on the cross, he pulled those out of the grave. Praise be to God, we don't have to do that. If we're in Christ, there is no going someplace else. And if you're confused about that, come see me afterwards. I can give you a long theological discussion. But the idea is he pulls us out of where we deserve. We deserve damnation. We deserve to be in the place of the dead, and he pulls us out of it. Praise be to God that death is not our final destination. Then it says in verse four, who crowns you with steadfast love. Now this word, steadfast love, is one of the greatest words in the history of words. It's the word chesed. It's a Hebrew word that requires a whole paragraph to explain. Basically, it's God's love that is so pure and so steadfast that nothing will take it away. It's loyal, it's continuous, and it's empowering. It says he crowns us with this. He puts this on us. We are given, we are given royalty. Like all those Hallmark movies, right? Where you've got the person who doesn't know that the other person is royalty and they meet over coffee and they fall in love and then, oh, guess what? I'm the princess of this unknown country in the middle of Europe and you're gonna marry me in a royal wedding. I, my wife watches a lot of Hallmark movies. So I still have my man card. It's in my back pocket, but they're okay. I like them. But the, the idea here is that it's undeserved, right? The, the nobody man who falls in love with the princess that he just thought was a cute girl at the coffee shop doesn't deserve royalty, but he gets it. We're even worse than that. We deserve the prison. And the Lord goes, no, I'm going to crown you. I'm going to put a crown of my love on you. The kindness of God is so plain. If we were to really get down to it, we are crowned with God's hesed love because Jesus was crowned with thorns. We get what he deserved. He get, got what we deserved. Praise be to God. And we see this in the second part where it says he crowns us with mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is I deserve this, but I get the opposite of it. Charles Spurgeon writes, he wrote poems. This is one of his poems, sort of. He says, the saints live by God's saving mercy, are preserved by his upholding mercy, are cheered by his consoling mercy, and enter heaven through his infinite and everlasting mercy. So I don't know if this means a literal crown and we're gonna all be walking around with crowns in heaven or if it's more of a, a focus in the fact that we know the only reason we get to go to heaven the only reason we get to walk with God for eternity is because of God's mercy. That crown that's on our head is to remind us, I am here because of Jesus. I'm not here because of my church attendance or my membership or my tithing or my offering or anything that I've done for Christ. I am here because Christ did it for me. Praise be to God that the Lord took that in our place. Verse five, it says, he will satisfy you with good. 
This idea of satisfying is continually giving the best over and over. And I don't think that he's talking about here on earth necessarily. I do think the Lord gives us good here. But what I think he's saying is, I'm gonna satisfy you here, but just you wait. When you get to heaven, the satisfaction will go on for eternity. Because like the song said, I can't get no satisfaction. I'm, I'm not meaning to rag on my wife, but I'm gonna do it again for a second. She also likes the Home and Garden channel, HGTV. And we occasionally watch a couple shows, and there's these two shows in mind, and she'll know which ones they are. You can talk to her about that later. Theology here, Home and Garden there, okay? But in this show, there's this lady, and, and, and she keeps wanting to get a better house, and a better place, and oh, this is my dream house, and this is like the third season of her dream house, like because each time she gets it, and then she goes, oh, this one's nice, but wouldn't it be great if I had that, and wouldn't it be better if I had this, or the family that actually even took over part of an island, and they kept remodeling it and fixing their house, and then they got this forever house, which lasted two months, and then they got this other forever house, which lasted three months, and they keep going, and why? Because even if you get exactly everything that the world says you need to have, it will not satisfy you. Only the all-sufficient God can satisfy. The one who is sufficient in himself is the one that's satisfied. He's the one we need. And so just a taste of his satisfaction, a taste of getting this psalm deep down in us, will do what we see at the verse five, will renew us like the eagles. Now the eagles don't actually get renewed over and over again. The idea here is that eagles do this thing called molting, where their leaves, their, leaves, their, their feathers all fall off. I was at the youth retreat all weekend and I'm running on about four hours of sleep and caffeine, so I apologize if words come out wrong. Eagles do not have leaves. We'll edit that out back there, guys, okay? All right, eagles have feathers, but the feathers would fall off and they'd get new feathers and it would look like a brand new eagle. And this is the promise that he's giving us here. He's saying, no matter how difficult it is, the Lord is gonna give you a glimpse of that goodness that you will have for all of eternity, the promised rebirth, a new start, a new life. And so David lays all this out and we're only five verses in. And so verse six, he states a fact. He says, here is a fact. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. What this means is he responds with the correct response to those who are oppressed, those who are being held down. In verse seven, he tells us the evidence. He says, he made himself known to Moses and Israel. He came down to Moses. He met with Moses. He said, I'm gonna tell you what I'm like. I'm gonna take Israel. I'm gonna show them what I'm like. Israel and Moses were oppressed. They were under the Egyptians. And you remember the story before the Exodus. They weren't even allowed to have their own children. They were supposed to kill them. They were oppressed. And yet the Lord in righteousness pulled them out of that. And we'll see this in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is all about the history of Israel. So David says this, he says, he made his ways known, and, and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit made David go, I need to explain this. And so we get verse eight, which is probably one of the best verses in the entire Bible. The Lord is merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This verse is God is not like us. He's full of mercy. We lash out when we don't get our way. He's full of grace, but we are stingy and we hold on to our stuff. He's slow to anger. Oh man, are we quick to anger. He has immeasurable love for us. We're fickle and we only like those people that love us. His love will not be moved. It'll always be loyal. Our love is movable and transient. He is not like us. This is a very, very good thing. When it says he's merciful, it means he's full of mercy. He's full of compassion. And again, with the steadfast love, it is immovable. He is merciful. He is great love. You know, God gets to define what he's like. No one else gets to define it. We sometimes are tempted to try to make God in our own image, but the God of the Bible doesn't allow us to do that. And I love how David here, he lays out, this is what God's like, and let me show you by example. You know, the Muslims believe that the God of the Bible and the God, their God, Allah, are the same. In the Quran, their holy book, they have 114 chapters. In 113 of them, they all start off with the, in the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate. However, other than those two words at the start of each chapter, everything else in each chapter is the opposite of merciful. It's the opposite of compassion. Instead, they have a God that has no mercy, no grace, no saving value unless you work and he's in a good mood. So to paraphrase the scholar, Inigo Montoya, you keep using those words, I do not think they mean what you think they mean. Praise be to God that when we see that the Bible says God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that this God is that. So David's gonna tell us, look at verse nine. He says, he will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. Chide means to nurse a, nurse a grievance, holding on to something where he goes, oh yeah, well, you know, you're asking for something in prayer? I remember when you did, you know, that's not the way God works. He will not maintain his anger forever. Unlike us, he does not hold on to past hurts even though it's well-deserved. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is mercy and grace explained. He does not deal with us the way we deserve. Mercy is get, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. And they go together right here. And we deserve death, and we don't deserve heaven. And instead, we don't get death, and we do get heaven. Grace and mercy right there. Psalm 130, verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So again, David, I can just kind of, I'm imagining his thought processes and he's going, okay, everybody, see how great this is? And they kind of are looking at him going, okay. David goes, okay, let me come up with an illustration. And he comes up with three illustrations. And these three illustrations are all based on the idea of infinite, all right? Infinite, as in no end in sight. One author wrote, these are the most perfect illustrations of God you could find in the human language. 
But we shouldn't be surprised because the Holy Spirit is the author. So the first illustration is verse 11. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? How high is that? Well, let's do a little experiment. It's gonna involve some numbers. 186,000 miles a second. That's how fast light travels. If you could get yourself to travel that fast from where you are sitting right now to the farthest reaches of the universe that we can potentially imagine is there, it'll take you 225 trillion years to reach it. And that's if there's an end to the universe. I mean, that might as well be infinite, right? I mean, I know trillions, we talk about that with our national debt, which is really depressing. But trillions and trillions and trillions of years, it is so far away. His love is so great that it's that big. The space between us and 225 trillion years worth of travel is not enough to contain God's love. It's infinite. Not only is he a God who makes mountains and hills and streams, but he's also a God who loves his people infinitely. I think if all, of the, the, if all of the traits of God, this is probably the one our world likes the best. But unfortunately, they have a, a misunderstanding of the word love. God is love so I can do what I want because he would never tell me no. God is love so I can destroy myself and not obey him, but he has to love me and let me in. It's important to notice in this verse, look at the end, toward those who fear him. We see this three different times in this psalm. He's saying, I have love towards those who are mine and are fearful of me. Now, this is not fear as in he's gonna squash us even though he could. It's awe and respect and honor. You don't get God's love and understand it if you don't respond in honor and respect and amazement. A life of worship and obedience is the correct response to God's love. So that's the first illustration, and it gets better. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. From the eastern horizon to the west, all of our rebellious actions are removed from us. What does this mean? What it means is he takes them one direction and he goes the other direction and they will never, ever meet. They're not stored in some corner that God will pull out because there is no corner. Because if you go east and the other person goes west, you're never gonna run into each other because they continue infinitely. Micah 7 says this, who is a God like you, parting iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. East and west never meet. He forgives our sins. He doesn't remember them. They're gone. We confess our sins. We do not need to wallow in those past grievances. He forgives and he forgets. He's not gonna dredge them up the next time we ask him for something. And honestly, this is where we probably need to push in a little bit. We don't follow this model like we do our God. We should follow this. We need to understand that to forgive others is for us to stand and act like God. And this is really hard, isn't it, when you have people in your life that are constantly needing you to forgive them 
And sadly, sometimes it's those who are closest, friends, coworkers, marriages, families. You've got people that are constantly rubbing up against you that you need to forgive. Spurgeon says this, though, because if we keep this in mind, if we keep God's removing our sins, then we cannot look at the sins of someone against us. This is what he says. He sweeps away all our transgressions. He has removed them all, all, all. From the cradle to the tomb, they are all gone. Sins in private, sins in public, sins of thought, word, deed, all gone. The moment you believe in Jesus, they are all, all, all gone. Now finally, notice the absolute perfection of the pardon. God has taken the people's sins away to an infinite distance. That's to say there's no fear that the sins will ever return. They are gone, 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 completely gone. Our sins are so effectively removed that they will not ultimately suffer any loss or damage because of our sins. The detriment of our sins was laid on Christ. His loss is our gain. His suffering was our joy. So the sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Why? Because he loves us with an infinite love. How does all of this make sense? Well, our third illustration shows us this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, God is an infinite father. And if you're paying attention and you just read that and you can see it on the screen, you're gonna go, hold on a second, Pastor John. There's nothing about infinite here. And I would say, that's what I thought first as well. But let me show you. God did not become a father when Jesus was born. I know a lot of us think that, right? We kind of go, oh yeah, well Jesus came into existence on Christmas or around that time and Jesus, God became a father. No, God has been a father for all of eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I don't know how it works. If you figure it out, tell me. But it goes together, and God the Father has been a Father for all of eternity. So his fatherliness is infinite. Men, if you have the privilege of being a father, you are stepping in as a representative of the true Father, of the Heavenly Father. See, God designed fatherhood to be a small picture of what God's relationship to us is to look like. It's to be a portrait of him. So we need to ask ourselves, how, how are we doing with that? Fathers in the room, how are you doing with being that father? Do they see God as a good father when they see you? Or do they see something else? I remember a few years ago, I had a conversation with a lady that I worked with. And there was a book that was making the rounds in our school and it was very heretical. But in this book, it talked about God as a mother. And my coworker said, my father abused me. I could never love God as a father, but I can love him as a mother. And I just, I just I, my heart breaks for her that her father did not point her to the true father. Because the infinite love of the infinite father is what we are to see, and it's what David wants us to see here. Our fathers have let us down. I've let my kids down. You've been let down by fathers. Don't let that distract from the heavenly father that we are to worship. His mercy is not earned. His love cannot be measured. 
His forgiveness is absolutely complete. He knows what we are like, and yet he still loves us. So the response to all this starts in verse 14. And the response is, we're small, we're nothing, but God loves us. Verse 14, he knows our frame. He knows, he remembers that we are dust. And there's two wonderful things that flow from this. The first one is we don't need to pretend. God knows what we are like. The most important audience in the universe knows us through and through. There's no pretending. There's no putting on airs for God. He knows what we are like. The second thing is that he remembers we're dust. He doesn't expect flawless perfection. Now this is not an excuse to be lazy and self-indulgent. Instead, God knows that we are limited and he knows that we're a work in progress. But yet he still loves us. He's not gonna say, well I'll love you when you reach this standard, but everybody else below there, sorry. No, he loves you wherever you're at, but he wants to pull you up and bring you up. We call that sanctification. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone and its place knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I wanna camp on verse 17 here. His steadfast love from everlasting to everlasting. This means from eternity to eternity. It means continual. So again, that infinite. His love goes on forever on those who fear him. Fearing God is the correct response. But the fear of God is not meant to make us run from him. It's to make us go, the only hope I have is to run to him. Like having the biggest kid on the playground as your best buddy when people are trying to bully you. It's the same idea here, is that we are to run to God out of fear because he's the one that is the one is full of awe and respect. And this is not the opposite of coming to Jesus. Right, It's not the opposite. This is how we come to Jesus. We come to God in reverence and we say, God, I need your son in my life. I need his blood to cover over me. I need your power. We are to come trembling. We're to come broken and contrite, fearing that our fickle hearts will take us away and pleading with him to keep us. Then it says, his righteousness to children's children. I love this phrase. What it's saying is, it's saying, if God was to take one of you and say, I'm gonna take all of my love and I'm gonna pour it out on you, you will live too short of a life for me to pour it all out. So I'm gonna have to pour it out on your kids and their kids and their kids and so on. Just your love, just the infinite love for one person I need a whole family for generations and generations and generations for your love. That's not their love. That's not their kids' loves, but it's your love. And that's just amazing to me that God has so much love for us that he could pour it out on us and it would spill over into countless generations. What a picture of his love. He reminds us that he rules over all. It says God's rule is forever. He's permanent There's nothing in this earth that is permanent like God. He is the only one that will stay. Look at uh, Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you formed the earth, the world, 
from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our lives are brief and unpredictable. God's love is steadfast. His righteousness is unchanging. He is the solid rock. So finally, verses 20 through 22 is a call to worship. This is the correct response to what we see. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So all of these people that are listed here, verse 20, angels, mighty ones, verse 21, hosts, ministers, these are all angelic beings. These are all beings that, that are worshiping God continuously right now. And these beings are terrifying. If one of these angels came into this room right now, we would all fall down on our faces as if we were dead. We wouldn't be like, oh, it's an angel, cool, high five. We're not, we're not able to be in their presence. And yet God has said, these angels, these mighty ones, the hosts are the, the fighting angels, right? The ministers, the ones that I have created, these spiritual beings, I am gonna allow you, little flecks of dust, I'm gonna bring you into the worship service and we're gonna worship together. And it's not like, hey, all the angels are in front and the, the humans are in the back. No, we are, what, grafted in. We are a part of God's family. We come to the front we get the best seats because we are the heirs of the king. And because of that, the angels sit in the back and they long to be as close to God as we get to be for all of eternity. Praise be to God because of Jesus' death. This growth in our Christian life is all about understanding God rightly. The world swirls around us. We need to remember the fundamental truth the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now there's some ways we can do this. Now as I'm covering these ways to do it, I'm gonna go ahead and have the worship team come on back up. But there's some ways we can remind ourselves of this. The first way is we need to behold God in his word. We need to behold God in his word. What does that mean? It means we need to read his word, right? Some days the clouds are thick and, and I can't quite understand that the sun is up there shining. I need to be reminded, I gotta open his word. And praise be to God, we don't have to do this on our own. There's lots of people here that have groups that they meet with. There's apps, but even more importantly, we have a men's and a women's Bible study that is gonna be starting up here in the fall. And there's gonna be plenty of opportunities for you to join in one of those and be reminded and feast in the middle of the week. Get yourself ready to understand that the sun is still shining no matter how thick the clouds. We can behold him in worship. We're doing that right now. But you don't have to come together in a group like this to worship. You can do it anywhere. But coming together like this is good because we, we bring each other up. So worshiping together on Sundays and third, we can behold God in his world. The nature of God and what God is like, we can see it in our world. And we live in a beautiful part of the country. Stop and look and go. The God that made every single individual snowflake, every single individual leaf, every single individual butterfly, raindrop, all the way through it all, he designed all of that and he loves me. Next week's psalm, Psalm 104, is all about this. So I don't want to steal too much from next week. 
But the idea here is that we can see God in the world. So is our God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? He is. He proved it in Jesus dying on the cross before you existed, while you were in your sins, he proved it. So remember, the sun is still shining and we need that reminder on the daily basis. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is there. Thank you, Lord, that your word is clear. And I pray, Lord, that it it, it lands on each of us, that we would see you as a gracious and merciful God, overflowing with love, slow to anger, patient with us, though we are dust. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for your son. Jesus' name, amen.